You're listening to The Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org lenses. Two weeks ago, Dr. Robert Smith Jr. from Beeson Divinity School came and kind of laid a theological groundwork, a foundation for our work on racial reconciliation. Dr. Bass was here last week as a history professor at Sanford and kind of gave a history on racial reconciliation in Birmingham. Uh, because if we're going to do about this work, we need to know our history. And tonight we're honored to have Dr. Michael Wesley and Dr. Danny Wood uh, to have this conversation together. Dr. Michael Wesley is the pastor at Greater Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And we are thrilled to have him as one of our church partners. And we're excited about uh, tonight. You have notes in front of you. If you don't have notes, I've got some extras back there on the music stand. You're welcome to step up and grab those. We also have lenses questions. These are 20 questions that were designed to ask about any topic that we could discuss and, uh, and then walk away with a Christian or biblical worldview about them. At the end of our time, we're going to hear a presentation, then we're going to have time for Q&A, and then after that, we break up into small groups, either around tables or uh, around chairs of about five to eight people, and we go through these questions. The questions we're going to ask tonight, there are four questions. Questions number three, five, ten, and thirteen. Three 5, 10, and 13. And I like to give these ahead of time because some people need uh, a little more time processing uh, uh, so that they know what they're going uh, to answer. Uh, Before we get started, we're going to stand together, read scripture, and I'm going to pray. So let us stand as we read from Ephesians chapter 4. Let's read together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. Let us pray. Great and mighty God, we thank you that we are united to you and united to one another through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray your Holy Spirit uh, would be with us tonight, leading us in this conversation and showing us a glimpse of heaven and how we can be about your work of reconciliation here on earth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you all for being here uh, tonight. How about this? Yeah, thank you. I was just trying to see, so you'd be thankful for that we have a sound system uh, over here, and uh, we put some funds to make it an even better sound system, so this will be great. Uh, hey, thank you all for coming and being a, a part of this uh, service tonight. Thank you for Jacob for putting it together so that uh, Dr. Wesley and I can come and uh, just talk, uh, talk to y'all. Uh, a lot of the, um, uh, I guess, the credit for us even coming together and getting to be friends is Tracy Hips over here. Uh, Tracy uh, was bugging me for uh, quite a long time. I'm saying there's a guy you got to meet, there's a guy you got to meet. I think y'all have got the same kind of vision over there and put us together. And first time we met, we said, we're glad we met. And uh, we're able to get our two churches to work together. And we'll talk some about that as we close out to, tonight. 
But um, what we wanted to do was uh, just, we're going to talk about a broad subject of racial reconciliation, and I think it's good just to hear uh, from kind of two different sides and understanding some about racism, and then at the same time, uh, what are some things that we can do to try to bridge some of those gaps and and truly uh, bring us together as we work together as both whites and African Americans. And so I I told Dr. Wesley, first thing I wanted to do is him just to tell his story. Um, uh, There's good news and bad news whenever you uh, get with Dr. Wesley, especially if you go out to lunch with him anywhere in Birmingham. You're there forever because everybody knows him. And um, uh, I mean, you walk in the restaurant, you gotta, everybody's got to talk to him, then they interrupt him at the table. And as, he, as both a pastor and having been an educator, I mean, there were people that were coming into his life, and he is so well-respected in the city. But as we drove around, he told me his story, having been here in Birmingham, and it's just really fascinating. So, uh, Dr. Wesley, I'm going to let you start us off and wow. just kind of give us your story. Well, good afternoon. Good evening. (laughs) It is a privilege to be here, and always it's an awesome experience to have moments with the pastor of this great church and my good friend and brother, by a different mother. (laughs) 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 But I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you tonight. Well, I'm Michael Wesley. I was born August 31st, 1954, the eighth son of eighth child of Henry and Katie Wesley. My parents uh, were pretty much hardworking persons. I would think, I did not know that we would have been considered to have been poor until I was a college student and in an economics class and listened to the numbers to realize that we would have fell below the poverty line. But in our upbringing, it was far from poverty. Our home was filled with a lot of love. Parents both were in the church. My father was a deacon. My mother was a Sunday school teacher. And um, so we were brought up in that way. They were strict disciplinarians. And I, being the youngest of eight, had a lot in front of me to see. I saw some good examples because I have five older brothers. And I saw some examples of things I did not want to do. I saw the examples of what can happen when you don't do well or do right. And that was enough to convince me. It's probably why I'm preaching today. <laughs> when I saw what happened to one of my brothers one day, I said, no, you don't have to worry about me. <laughs> and so um, I, I followed. You have to understand, I laid that out because following siblings, produced a lot of pressure. I have two sisters. One of them is with us tonight. And um, they were very good students. They were smart. They did well. They did right. And I had some brothers that were pretty good students, and I had some other brothers that wasn't. And so when people in the community encountered me, they said, oh, this is another one of those little Wesleys. My mother's sister was an educator in the Birmingham system. And everyone knew her. This was during the period of segregation. When it was the law that blacks and whites uh, attended schools separately, rode separate transportation, all of those kinds of things. And so we lived in a a segregated community where we kind of understood the parameters of what you could and could not do. 
and it was just kind of a difficult way of life. It was following my siblings at Washington Elementary School where all of us went for eight years, except my sister who also went for a while, but then went to W.C. Davis School, that I decided a different path for myself. In 1967, the school law was changed and choice forms were given for the first time that uh, students were not necessarily zoned, that uh, integration became a, a way of life and uh, persons could choose the schools that they attended. So in 1968, I opted to go to Ramsey High School because of, again, following in the pathway of my other brothers and sisters who all got, went from Washington to Ullman High School, which is now the Bell Building at UAB's campus. Um, so I wanted a different path. I wasn't necessarily trying to be um, a trailblazer by way of, of race or anything like that, but I wanted an opportunity. I wanted an opportunity not for a handout or anything, not to demonstrate a lack or need, but just wanted an equal opportunity. Growing up in the schools, the schools were separate. They were said to be separate but equal, but they were far from equal. Black schools were very much inferior. I listened to the stories of my older siblings who attended Ullman. When they would come home, and my brother played football once, and uh, they asked him, said, uh, do you know where these helmets came from? Uh, the reason that they're blue and not green and gray as almonds cold colors were. And he was told that these were the, the helmets that Ramsey had when they got new ones. My sister learned that in the typing class, of course, they had typing in those days, not computers. Um, do you know where these um, typewriters come from? They had the manual typewriters. All of the kids at Ramsey and other schools had the electronic typewriters. And so they always received the hand-down computers, I mean typewriters. Even as a kid growing up, going downtown, downtown Birmingham, sitting at the lunch counters. We had to sit at the counters that said colored only, using the restrooms that said colored only. That was a part of what I grew up with. And so going to Ramsey was my first experience with uh, integration, meeting with people of a, of a different race. And it was also many of those students' first experience with meeting with people of a different race. And that was, that was ignorance both sides. Ignorance meaning not knowing. There were stories that were told about blacks and, and some of the guys that I got kind of friends with, I was participant in the band and athletics and all those things so we had a chance to kind of interact and one guy asked me one day he said well where, where where's your where's your tail you know because I mean the stereotypes had been just kind of maligned and, and laid as if black people were something other than a human and and so it was it was a learning curve that was some things some prejudicial things that I probably brought to the table ignorance on my part about race relationships and other things like that. And it was just kind of a challenge. Nowadays, when students go to Ramsey, they have to take a test. 
to get into the school. Our test was to stay in school, to stay there and to deal with, with the challenges. I mean, because there were there was some name calling, there was some few scrapes and a few scraps, a few bumps and a few lumps. There were even some teachers who had not had the experience of, of teaching uh, black students at that time. I remember in a history class, uh, the word Negro was in the book. And she didn't say Negro. She said Negra. That was the way she pronounced it, Negra. And of course, smart me stood up one day and I took it up to her. I said, the word is Negro. And she said, now, if you ever make a hundred on one of my tests, I'll let you stand on your head. <laughs> well, the next test, I was dishonest. I cheated. <laughs> I copied verbatim out of the book, and she still marked it wrong. <laughs> so, I mean, those, those kind of experiences. But I had great experience, though. At the same time, I was uh, first person at Ramsey, first African-American to play first chair. I played first chair, first trumpet. I played basketball, baseball, football, ran track, and all of, all of those kind of experiences. Got exposed to some great coaching, and, and people were struggling. People really tried to make it be a good situation. And I, I attended all four years, and I graduated. I graduated. Some people graduated cum laude, summa cum laude. I graduated. Thank you, laude. <laughs> And having had the, 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 the white experience at Ramsey for four years, I then sought to have the African-American experience. So I sought for a college, all black. And there were two top schools. That was Tennessee State and that was Florida A&M. Florida A&M was on television at that time because of Bob Hayes, who was said to be one of the fastest men on the earth at that time, uh, playing football. And Florida A&M had a great band. By this time, I had sustained injuries through athletics, and so I decided music would be my path rather than athletics. And so I applied at both schools, and I had not heard from either one. My mother said, you're going to school. She said, um, you're going to have to go to Miles College. I did not want to go to Miles. She said, Miles is a good school. Your sisters had gone. Your brothers had gone. There. I was, again, going to follow in that that shadow. So I was praying, Lord, please don't let me have to go to Miles. Of course, I did not hear from Tennessee State. It was time for college to begin. And my mother sent me to Miles. I went to school the first day, enrolled, went to the first day of class. And when I came home from the first day of class, that was a letter from Tennessee State offering me a full scholarship. And so I picked my mother up. I said, Nashville, Pike or bust. And I went to Nashville, Tennessee State, majored in music, met a little girl. She was a pretty little girl. She was always in a distance. She used to wear these little pink shorts. And I hit one of those friends. I said, hey, man, who's that girl over there with those pink shorts? And um, they told me who she was, and I never really got a chance to meet her until the spring of the freshman year. I was playing softball, the athletic in me and one day the potential cues that was a fraternity and the potential capitals were playing and I hit a home run knocked it out of the park and when I came around home base she jumped up on me that girl with those pink shorts 
Will you stand up, girl, with those pink shorts? That's my wife. We've been married 35 years. We've been together 42. Can I ask a question? Sure. How many of you played in the band and had someone jump on you? Uh, <laughs> no. All right. Just thought I'd push athletics. Thank you. All right. All right. Graduated from Tennessee State with a bachelor's in music, returned to Birmingham, um, and began teaching music at Lincoln Elementary School. Vanita uh, and I, Vanita was from Columbus, Ohio. She went back to Ohio. I came to Birmingham. We dated back and forth a little bit. But then after a year, we decided we either have to get married or forget it. And we chose to get married. And um, so we went to Ohio, got married. And as the rest of that part is history. We now have two grown sons and three grandchildren. So that's the family side. But the other side was the career. In music, I taught band for five years. I had one of the top elementary school bands in the city of Birmingham, Lincoln Elementary School. We won all the all-city band festivals. We went to Shades Mountain, uh, all-state band competitions, and uh, our band got through on a couple of adjudications and, and earned superior rating. I think that probably propelled me forward because in the fifth year of my teaching career, I was promised to become the next high school band director, and I was expecting to become a high school band director. The next high school that came open was Banks High School. And when they named the new band director, it was not me. I was highly disappointed. But two weeks after, I got a call to the central office. And they asked me to go to Smith Middle School as assistant principal. Now, I did not have the certification at that time. I was a student at Samford. I just earned a master's degree in music education. I was working on a second master's in school principalship. And they asked me to go to Smith. Smith was a white school with a few black students at that time. I guess God's hand was on me in that process. The first day I was there, there was a young black boy who had gotten in trouble over the weekend. And while I was waiting on the principal, I was sitting there. And I heard the conversation. And it was something about he had a gun. And I asked him, I said, son, do you have a gun? I said, you know they're going to send you to jail, put you in jail if you've got a gun here at school. I said, if you have a gun, why don't you give it to me before school starts and we could probably save you some trouble. Well, the young man took me to his locker and gave me his gun. Now, I had not even been introduced as assistant principal and had already confiscated a gun. So word went around the school pretty quickly. And working at Smith one year while attending Samford, God, again, hand was on me. During the summer, I went to Samford's London Center in London, England. I had the opportunity to study at the Inner London Educational Authority, which was the equivalent of the Birmingham Public uh, School System, central office. I had a chance to study at Oxford and to visit many places across the English Channel. Well, it was during the summer, at the summer end, my mother called me from Birmingham and said, uh, Dr. Canelo, who was assistant superintendent of personnel, is looking for you. 
Uh, he's left his number. Would you call him? So I gave him a call. And he asked me, Michael, are you ready to be school principal? Now, I'm fully expecting to return to Smith. And I said, if given an opportunity, I will. Well, the next two days, my mother called me back. She said, all the schools have principals have been named. And guess who has been named principal of Powderless School? I was 29 years old and was named the youngest principal that Birmingham had hired at that time. So when I returned to the United States, then I went to Powderless School and began working there. Sheila Davis, one of your church members, was one of my teachers. She was one of the ones there. I had older members on the staff at that time who were old enough to be my mother and grandmother, and many of them were cantankerous and contrary and <laughs> did not want to do anything this young boy said do. And that's when I began to mature a little bit, I guess, as a man and as a leader. Because I was praying during that time. I didn't like confrontations. And that was experiences when sometimes you would ask people to do something and they did not necessarily want to do it. So I prayed, Lord, give me a little bit more bulldog so that I can make these people do. And God spoke something in my heart that set me free. He said, no, you don't need more bulldog because if you had more bulldog, you would act like a bulldog. You would lacerate and cut and bite people. What you need is the integrity to tell the truth. And I learned that in my humor and in my foolish way of being that I could get my point across by simply telling the truth. Six months after being at Powderless School as principal, there was a lady who worked in the office who was the office aide. Her name was Lorene Pickett. She and her husband were members of Greater Shiloh. And she said to me one day, she said, would you come to our church to preach? She said, our pastor is past 80, and we're looking to get a young man to come in to assist him. I said, well, I'll preach anywhere. I've been preaching then about four years. And um, so I was given an opportunity, an invitation to come to Greater Shiloh on the second Sunday in December, six months after I came as the new principal. Well, I preached that Sunday the reason for the season. And after I finished that message, Reverend Thomas stood up behind me and he said, Seth, the deacons asked me about getting some help and I really didn't think much of it. And he said, and now you've brought in three or four candidates. He said, but after today, don't bring anyone else in. God has pointed out this young man. And with that, I was given a second invitation to come back to Greater Shallow in February to preach. After the second time preaching, the church held a church meeting, business meeting, and they voted unanimously to extend the invitation to me to become the assistant pastor of the church. So I became bivocational. I was the assistant pastor of the church, and I was principal of the school. And I was in graduate school because I continued at Samford. So White Ramsey black Tennessee State, white Sanford, black Greater Shallow, black Powderly. So it's been that kind of balance of, of both races in, in school, in leadership, in, in the work. I, rem I stayed at Powderly eight years. To fast forward a little bit, Powderly is located in the West End community where Greater Shallow is. 
after eight years at Powderly, I was asked to go to Arrington Middle School. Arrington is the school that's located right next to Greater Shallow. I became the second principal of Arrington. Arrington was gang infested. The faculty had rebelled against the uh, interim principal. Division was everywhere. And I was asked to take that school. And in a short period of time, we were able to clean it up. One of the problems, there was a lovely teacher there who loved giving all of her students F. And therefore, the school was staffed with 17 and 18-year-olds in middle school who were gangbangers and drug dealers and leading young children astray. And once we determined what had really happened, we were able to correct that, work with the high school principals to set up uh, remedial classes in ninth grade, put all of those kids on contract, and move those kids to the high school. And we were able to clean up Arrington in a short period of time. We earned the superintendent's award. We reduced discipline, increased finances, increased student attendance, and, and the school got on track, and it's been on track ever since. After five years at Arrington, I was asked to go to Woodlawn High School. Woodlawn was a troubled school at that time. They had closed Banks High School. They had closed Hayes High School. And only Woodlawn and Huffman remained as schools on the eastern side. The problem with Woodlawn is they bust 12 housing projects into Woodlawn High School. So there were gang wars every day. John Eppolito, who was the principal prior to my coming, of course, there was a demographic shift, and it was becoming more African-American. It became a kind of volatile situation. So they said to me, we need a strong black man to go into Woodlawn. And my sister, Janice, was already there. She was the senior counselor. And we started working together, but I said that would be nepotism for her to remain. Of course, I hated to lose her, but it led to her being promoted to school principal. And she eventually went to Powderly, where I had left, and became the principal of Powderly. And um, I stayed at Woodlawn two years. We were able to turn the school around, decrease gang violence, to set an academic focus on the school. All the while, I'm still pastor of Greater Shallow. So it was a tremendous challenge. Then I was moved to the central office, where I served as Safe and Drug-Free Schools coordinator and extended day principal. So I got a chance to return after a few more years back to the community. I retired. I got sick for the first time when I was 46 years old. My wife and I went out to Houston, Texas to a National Baptist Convention. And I ended up in Baylor Hospital in Houston. For eight days, two of those days, I was in intensive care. I heard the doctor say one of those times, I'm not sure if he will return to Birmingham. And that frightened me. And that night in the intensive care unit, my life flashed before my face on the screen. And it was as if God said to me, are you ready to be pastor of the church? Now, I was saying, I thought I was, but I really wasn't. I said, if you get me up from here and take me back to Birmingham, I won't make any more excuses why I won't do what you ask me to do. And when I returned back to Birmingham, I said then my career in education was over. They never found anything wrong with me. That was God's way of getting my attention. I was off work from June to January. 
The law at that time was you have to have 30 years of work experience or be 62 before you could retire. And I was close to neither. The law changed that very year where I was off to allow persons to retire at 25 years of service in any age. I needed two years. I got those two years. I said, Lord, if you give me those two years, I'll come out and work for you, serve you fully. Well, I got to the 25th year, and they promoted me again in the school district. I got to the 26th year, and they offered me a different position even then as assistant superintendent. But I went, I was torn. I went to the church, and I prayed. I said, Lord, I don't want to make a mistake. If it's really you, I want to be obedient. And when I finished, the Bible was there, kind of flipped, and it fell on Matthew 19. And the passage of Scripture read, No man who has left father, mother, houses, and land for my sake and for the gospel, who shall not in this life receive a hundredfold, and in the life to come, eternal life. That was my confirming answer. I went to my office. I wrote my letter. I didn't stop until I put it in the superintendent's hand. I said, I'm done. People said to me, you're crazy. I walked away from a job earning over six figures to go to a small African-American church full-time. I went to work every day, no one in the building but me. I would sit there and pray. And I said, God, this seemed to be a waste of my talent and time. What is it that you want? And I began to dream and envision what church could be like. About that time, Janice had retired. And I said, come over and be in the building with me. And a girl who was secretary at that time was part-time. I said, come over and answer the phone. So three of us were in an empty building every day. And God began to cast vision in my heart about the building that we're in now and about community revitalization. Now, we had an opportunity to, to move. We could have relocated to the suburbs. But during that period of time, God branded in my heart that he needed us to remain in West End that the West End community at that time, zip code 35211, was said to be one of the deadliest zip codes in the state of Alabama, in the top 11 in the United States. Drugs, crime, and other kinds of things were running rampant. Nothing new had taken place in the West End community for over 44 years. Having grown up in Birmingham, I was aware that West End at one time was a middle-class white neighborhood. All of the black churches during that time were located on the south side in the UAB area. That's where the heavy concentration of blacks lived. From Elmwood Cemetery all the way up to about 36th, 38th Street, 6th Avenue, 5th Avenue, 4th Avenue, 3rd Avenue, 4th Alley, 3rd Alley, all of that, all throughout the south side was heavily um, populated with, with blacks. On the upper end of the medical center, up past uh, UAB, um, Veterans Hospital, up on the hill near Ramsey, a lot of immigrants. That's where the Vaccarellas, the Missarinis, the Shinaras, all, all those guys lived in that area. Bostonis and many um, European uh, Greek immigrants and Italian immigrants lived in, in that area. And when UAB... Greater Shallows Church was located right where the parking deck of UAB 
uh, should I say, Children's um, Mercy Hospital was now uh, the hospital that's been under fire. Sixth Avenue Baptist Church was located right there where the hospital sits. Greater Shiloh initially was called Shiloh, and it was located on 19th Street and 7th Avenue. We called it Avenue G, where the Veterans Hospital is diagonally across the street. The tragedy of 1902, that's another story, caused the church to move up the street to 7th Avenue and 14th Street, which is right across from Bartow Arena. The church began to build in the basement, and because of the depression and other things hit, the church remained in the basement for almost 40 years. And finally, in 1961, the church finished the upper level of the sanctuary. But 1967-68, UAB was flexing its muscle to become an inner city university. And so all of the churches that were located in that area were forced to move west. Sixth Avenue, which was located where Mercy Hospital is, moved to its new location on Martin Luther King. New Hope, New Hope Church was the church that's located on UAB's campus now, right next to Allen Stevenson Center, that church building. That was New Hope. Friendship Baptist Church was right there on 12th Street. Shiloh was right there on 14th Street. Southside CME was adjacent to Greater Shiloh. Our Lady Queen of the Universe was right on 6th Avenue. Union Bethel was right on 6th Avenue. All of those churches moved west and so populated the West End community. The first group of African Americans that moved into the West End community were serious about trying to develop a good life for themselves and their families. But over a period of time, over a 44 period of time, their kids grew up. And they went away to college and got better educated. They did not return to the West End. So houses, original homestead houses became blight and other kinds of things. Deterioration began to set. And it was about this time that the vision God was birthing in me began to live. We looked at relocating to Lakeshore because at that time it was going to become the coming area. But God spoke deep and said, no. I need you to remain in West End. The community needs the church's mission and vision and presence and ministry. So we did a survey with all of our congregation. We brought in architects to look at what we could do to maintain that facility. It was told to us that we would have to take out 18 houses to do what we were seeking to do. And it just did not make sense to dismantle a functioning black neighborhood to build a church. And there was some virgin land in the community. We went to the landowner and asked him to sell us the land. And he said he wasn't going to sell it because he had a commercial project that he wanted to complete there. I went to him several times. We were friends from high school. And he told me, I told him, I said, God wants us to build a church here. He said, I'm not going to sell it. I said, Rick, God wants us to build a church. And he said, I don't care. He said, I'm not going to sell it. I said, well, allow us to do a mock groundbreaking. And he said, I don't care what you do. He said, I'm not going to sell it. So we took about 20 people down after church one day with our film, with our cameras, and we dug in the ground in a mock groundbreaking. And he said, uh, they asked, they said, where are you going to build a church? And I pointed right to the site. 
I showed the congregation that film at the Boutwell Auditorium in our first ever capital campaign. Our first ever capital campaign, we had 287 people who pledged $1.3 million. We didn't collect all of that. <laughs> it's easy to pledge. And so I learned about three-year campaigns during that time because right about that time, the bottom hit out, dropped out of the economy. But anyway, two weeks after I showed the film to the church, the guy called me. He said, Mike, he said, uh, do y'all still want to purchase the property? I said, yes. He said, God woke me up, wouldn't let me sleep, said I'd left the church out. <laughs> well, we negotiated the deal. We bought the property, and uh, nothing else has been on that property since. Uh, a couple of years ago, the young man passed away and wanted to be with the Lord and never did anything that he wanted to do with the property. So we, we're sitting there, and we, we're still having a heart to revitalize West End. And, and part of revitalization means that there has to be racial reconciliation. To be honest with you, I don't have to give you the history of all of that, but in what has happened in, in race relationships, people migrate to communities like themselves. Whether that's natural or, or, or unnatural, they, they do it. We do it as human beings. And what happens with that, that means all of the white people left West End, all of the educated black people left West End, and it left West End, what, stripped. And so if, if the community is going to be revitalized, there has to be, there has to be first reconciliation, racial reconciliation. And then there has to be some level of redistribution of some of the resources so that there's not just a disproportionate of resources all in one neighborhood and none in another. And um, then there has to be relationships built that lead to partnerships, and partnerships lead to projects, and projects lead to communities and people being changed. And so my history has been a good history. I've had a balance. I've had some challenges. But I've had some friends and some people to come along in my life to sow positive seeds. And it's always been the hand of God that's been there to guide and to direct and to keep me going in the right direction. And a few years back when Tracy introduced Danny Wood and I, it was, it was one of the great experiences of all time because Tracy was telling me the same thing he was telling Danny. <laughs> you got to meet this guy. You got to meet this guy. So he played matchmaker. He was a bridge builder <laughs> That's right. and, and put us together. And when we had that conversation, we almost finished each other's sentence. And our visions were very similar. And I did have the privilege of going with Danny and with Jeremy and with several on a couple mission trips, including the trip to India. It was one of the great highlights of my, my life, and I'm grateful to God for the opportunity to, to share together, and wherever God carries us in the future, we look forward to the exciting challenge. Amen. You, um, you grew up, yeah, give incredible story, because you grew up in the 60s uh, and the 70s, and um, uh, naturally being in Birmingham, we see the, the pictures with fire hoses and dogs and all of that. And um, so tell me, how did you go through the 60s and 70s and maintain 
sort of the balanced view that you have. It, it, was, it was a challenge. Again, being the youngest, I, I was spared from some of it, but my siblings were not. Uh, Janice, stand up. This Janice Kelsey. Janice is my sister that I was speaking of. <laughs> Janice was a teenager during the 60s at Almond High School, and, and she defied my mother's warnings about going to the mass meetings, the civil rights mass meetings. And she went, and she ended up being arrested and going to jail and was a part of the Children's March and uh, spending the night in jail at Fair Park. And her story is incredible in and of herself, talking about those experiences. And so there were many African-American families that were actually afraid of what was going on. You hear a lot of people you know, sticking their chest out today as if they were really bold. But our parents really were trying to protect us, to keep us from getting hurt, uh, participating in those kinds of things. There was some that, that went forward. She was one. My brother was another. And like I said, I saw enough examples. If they were going to go, I was not. So I stayed home and watched them on television. <laughs> <laughs> but... um. I was aware, we were right in the center of it. The, the church meetings, many of the meetings were held at the church that we attended, South Illerton Baptist Church. Uh, my mother was a civil rights worker. She participated in the Civic League. So she was a brilliant person who did a lot of the paperwork for persons who had need of those kinds of things. But um, 16th Street Baptist Church, I remember when it was bombed in 63, we were at church at South Illerton. And um, pastor came out of his study, the phone rang, he came out of his study and announced 16th Street Baptist Church has just been bombed. And all of the black churches in Birmingham were dismissed at that time because there was fear that other bombs were still in other churches and no one knew exactly where they were. So that was a, that was a period of fear and trepidation um, to some degree. And, um, but to try to you know, my heart was to not receive a handout, but to demonstrate that I was just as good as anyone else. I was, I was just as smart as other kids. I could run just as fast. I could play just as well on the instrument. And I just wanted an opportunity. And so that was the mindset of most blacks during that period, was just to seek the opportunity, the same level of opportunity that white kids were given. Yeah, it's uh, um, those are those are turbulent times naturally when you grew up in the South, and so uh, seeing you there in Birmingham, and we're about the uh, same age. I was also born in August, but it was 1953 on that, so you kind of I kind of paved the way for you. <laughs> and um, I, you know, growing up uh, in Atlanta during that time, uh, uh, we were in a actually an all-white neighborhood, went to a school, they began to bust some kids in. And for us, there were just like, uh, I think there's like four black families. I can remember the Nesbitts, the Jones, the Moores, and, and the Rose. And, um, and that was it. That was who was in your, in your school. And, uh, but there was a, a, uh, a pretty good bit of racism from us as in the white community towards the black community because what the black community was doing was saying we're going to stand up for our rights and so from the white community it was thought of as they're just a bunch of troublemakers and all of that and that you would hear the stories 
about those that were uh, uh, that were protesting or whatever. And so it was. You were kind of. You were just sort of torn on that uh, because I was just a kid, and so as a kid, you don't sit there and look at the depth of the systemic problems over there. You just it's what you see, maybe on TV or hear people talk about on there. And um, it was uh, finally just being in school. And, and, you know, I went all the way through elementary school and was never there with a, a person that was an African-American. And it was only until I was in high school that I would, I would meet some. Uh, I'll never, never forget that um, the uh, girls' basketball team, uh, my best friend dated um, the star player. And um, he asked me if I would be the statistician for the girls' basketball team. I said, yeah, it'd be great. And so uh, we got to travel to all the ball games. And there was a black point guard named Linda Moore who I had a great affection for her because I was in a driver's ed class with her and there was just a chump of a guy. And I'll give you his, I remember his name. I don't remember most of y'all's names, but he was an idiot. And, and he sat behind her and she had a boyfriend named Pito. And he would sit there and he'd go, Pito, Pito, Pito. she hear that going on. She turned around and slapped the fire out of him one day. And bam! She slapped and said, don't you ever talk about Pito again. I went, whoa, I like Linda over here. And he never did a- anymore, which was great. And so we would travel together on the bus. And I'd sit there and I'd talk to her and get to know her. And my job was if they had jewelry, I'd hold on to their jewelry while they played basketball. So I held on to her ring, uh, her class ring. She was a year older. And during those days, when you ever went steady with someone, if you guys remember this, the guy would give their senior ring to the girl. And then she'd wear it. She'd put some wax under it because her fingers weren't as big. And Danny, you know that. You, you gave yours out to a lot of girls. And so, um, <laughs> you know, they get that and they put it on. Well, if you were going steady with a girl and she had her ring, you could take her ring and put it on your small finger. So I would take Linda Moore's ring and just to hold on to it. I just kind of put it on my finger just to hold on to it. And I thought when I was riding back on the bus, I said, I wonder if I should go home with her ring on and tell my dad <laughs> that I'm dating Linda Moore over there. And uh, I didn't, but I wanted to so bad, <laughs> so bad. It was so much fun. But what that did for me, and it was like when you think about what Dr. Wesley, what you talked about is that you, know, I was, you were in both worlds yeah. and as you were growing up, and it helped you to try to understand that. It did, it did the same for me. And then at Auburn, there really wasn't that many uh, times you would, we would uh, cross paths with people that were black, was in an all-white fraternity. But when I went to work with a telephone company and uh, got an opportunity to work downtown, uh, it really helped me. There was a guy by the name, his first name was Foster, uh, who worked in the same office that I did down in the Phoenix building. And uh, Foster's a guy you want to go at lunch. He's like Dr. Wesley. Man, you walk down the street, everybody knew him. Foster, how's it going, man? He's the nicest guy. And we would sit and just talk. And, uh, and, and I, built, I built such a strong friendship with him and affection for him that those feelings that I felt like I had as a young person, I was dealing with those. And, and now as I'm out in the real world and I'm matching up, I'm saying, you know, there's no difference, okay? You know, we're all created uh, equal in God's eyes and we're all God's creation. And I said, it helped me to walk through that because of building the relationships. And as we began to do a partnership here, our goal and we started the goal of building relationships. We didn't just sit there and say, let's do some projects together right. Right. on that. Uh, but let's build. And this is part of both our, our, our views. Mm-hmm. And we built relationships. And let's build the friendships first. And then we get together on the vision for how to help right. transform right. the West End. 
One, one of the things I would like to say to all of us, and, and I know sometimes when you get into the subject of, of racial uh, relationships, uh, you, you tend to feel guilty. It's easy to talk about it when you're in isolated groups, but when you're in a mixed company, it becomes a little more challenging. But all of us have to realize that it wasn't your fault. No one here laid down the law. The law of the land contributed to what really happened. From the time of Plessy versus Ferguson, and I don't want to get into the history of all that, but for 100 years, almost a full century, right after slavery ended and segregation became the law um, in terms of, of blacks, in terms of transportation, public transportation, facilities, schools, and relationships. It became illegal. And, and it was driven down into the hearts and mind of people that you are violating the law. If you were a white person and you demonstrated sympathy or empathy toward a black person, you were violating the law. And so consequently, people pulled back. And people did not try to build relationships. And it, it, it really is, it, it goes deeper. It goes to, to the myths of superiority. And it's, it's the same kind of thing that happened to the Jewish people. Uh, history now records the Holocaust. Because the Germans came against the Jewish people. And the Germans at that time ascribed to a myth of superiority. It, it's an Aaron myth, A-R-Y-A-N, if you want to look it up. Aaron myth of superiority, which believed that, that with power and force, you can crush people who are less stronger than you. And, and therefore, they ascribed to that myth. The Germans wanted people to believe that they were superior. Then later, European people began to ascribe to another myth of superiority. It's called the Nordic myth of superiority. And it translated into, into what we now know became the law of the land. And that was, if you're white, you're all right. <laughs> if you're brown, you can hang around. But if you're black, get back. And, and, and that became the practice and it was, it was perpetuated, not only because it was law, but it was, it was supported by the church. That's what has made it difficult. And now what has to happen, because we are Christian, we understand that out of one blood, God made all mankind. We're better informed. It is no longer the law, and so we don't have to live our lives in straight jackets like that anymore. And the way to improve the process is through, A, teaching the truth of the Scriptures. Because the Scripture knows nothing about slavery like we knew it in America. They knew indentured servanthood. But God never intended for the Jews to own another 
or to be owned by anyone, even though they were enslaved. That was his purpose, to grow the nation. But once they got out, God gave them all kind of laws, the law of jubilee. Every 50 years, even if you got in trouble, things returned to its original owner that no one was to own another person. And, and, and while that was a part of American's history, that was America's past. That does not have to be America's future. And it certainly does not have to be our future. We can't change what happened. I found myself waking up in the 60s, born in the 50s, in the 60s, and dealing with the circumstance of that day. But we are now in a new, new era. And young people who attend the schools, people who are, who are exposed to various other cultures, you begin to see the commonality that's among all people. One of the values here at Shades has been missions. And with the number of mission trips that persons have taken and the number of people who have gone into other places, you can't help but to know that people are people. I remember my first trip to Africa on a mission trip. I was there. I was going to preach. Got in at midnight. I had to preach that morning. I was intimidated because I did not know how the language barrier would impact me. I did not know that there would be any connection whatsoever. But that morning, that Sunday morning, we got to church. And I'm sitting there, I'm literally trembling. Because in a little while, I'm going to be introduced to speak. And the music started. And they started singing. And I heard the great harmonies. I said, yeah, we from here. <laughs> and then they, they took, took the collection, the offering. And the way they do offering, they, they line up in the back and they come down front and they're dancing and they're doing all that. I said, yeah, I feel a little bit better. <laughs> and so my, my fears were eased. And then when I got up to speak and I recognized that I was able to connect, then I began to see that even there, even though I don't consider myself an African I'm an American whose skin has been darkened by nature's sun. <laughs> but Africans would not consider me an African because of the culture and the understanding and all of those, those kinds of things like that. Across the world, when we went to India, I preached in an indigenous house church in Delhi. And all of the service was in their native tongue. And when I began to preach that day, I was preaching through an interpreter, and I would go, for God so loved the world, and he went, that <laughs> he gave his only begotten son, and it was, just, it was just incredible to me, and when we finished the message, I went back to sit on the floor where we were sitting, and um, 12 people stood up, and Jeremy hit me, I said, he said, they're standing to receive Christ. God, and that was just, it was just an eye-opening experience. Having been in China, having been in India, having been in Africa, having been all over Europe, having been all over the United States, I cannot look at people 
and just have a natural hatred towards someone because they happen to look different or to be different from myself. And that's what I believe a broad-based cultural exposure and education will do. So the hope for America lies in the younger generation who find themselves mixing and mingling more and exposed more to people who are different from themselves and therefore can learn the truth that it doesn't have to be that way. Amen. It's a great word. Jacob, you want, if there's some questions, I know we're... We're going to have a moment of, of questions. I'd love to ask the first one, Dr. Wesley, if I may. Um, and you are a man who tells the truth, so I'm going to ask you to tell the truth. Tell the truth. <laughs> the, uh, being white in the South, we're often blind to systemic racism that still exists. Uh, inform us and enlighten us on some of the issues that we may not be aware of that are certainly affect the African-American community currently. I think probably one of the that, that three, in, in my mind, the, the whole theology of inner city ministry comes to play here. There are four areas, economic, education, health and wellness, and politics. Those are four areas that I don't think white people as a whole really understand the plight of black people. I, I think in, by way of economics, many white people do not know what it is to struggle. There are many that do. But by and large, there are persons that do not know what that struggle is about. And one, when you look at the communities and you see young people um, who did not complete the education process, end up dropping out, end up going to prison, now they can't get a job. They still have to eat. They still need to live. They still want nice things. They see the picture of the American dream. And they can't do it legally, so they resort to crime and other kinds of things. And that's why one of the solutions that must be proposed is ways in which we can empower people to take charge of these systems that negatively impact their life. And so for a community like West End, we have to create jobs. Because if we don't create jobs, Nene and Ricky and Pookie, those are slain names. They're going to find a way. They're going to deal drugs or they're going to take something that belongs to someone else. But if they can be equipped and understand that they can have a second chance by developing a skill and having an opportunity to gain employment, they can, they can reconnect to their families, they can have a good feel about themselves, and they can do well. So that's one area is economics. The other is, is education. When, when young people fail in school, they're, they're, the schools are being labeled now, labeled as failing schools. I totally disagree with that. Having spent 26 years in the schools, there are no such things as failing schools. Buildings do not fail people. There are failing parents. Parents who fail to give their children the early experiences that they need so that when they show up at the school door, they are ready to begin to have numbers make meaning and make sense out of print. That's a parental issue. And the long-term solution to the problem in education is to develop more early childhood education programs to expose kids. My classic example is 
in a typical kindergarten classroom, there are 15 children. Ten of those kids may come from a family that sent those children to some preschool program. Five of those kids will, because the young teen mother got pregnant early and had to go to work at McDonald's, so the child was left home with grandmother. Grandmother allowed the television to be the daycare center. When those kids show up at school having no preschool experience, and you have these 10 who has gone to some preschool experience who now know alphabets and numbers and colors and shapes. The new teacher who just graduated from Auburn or Tennessee State or Miles or Alabama who has been taught in a methods class to divide her students according to groups. Take these 10 and the top five become the red bird group because they can read. And the next five, the blue bird group because they're coming along. But that bottom five that had no preschool readiness become the buzzard group. And so now this teacher has a red bird group, a blue bird group, and a buzzard group. Now watch what happens. Self-esteem began to get crushed in the kids that are in this group. Oh, my red birds are doing so well. My blue birds are coming along. Oh, them buzzards. <laughs> then the teacher has a parent conference. And she doesn't understand. My red birds are doing so well. My blue birds are coming. But I, I can't help the buzzards. Now this teacher goes in the lounge and she's talking among her peers. Oh, Danny, you'll get my class next year. Oh, you're going to love my red birds. My blue birds are going to be fine, but watch out for those buzzards. Two years, three years of labeling. When the problem is nothing is wrong with the kid's brain, that was the, the problem of readiness. And it's not understood that someone needs to come along beside those kids and build the background that's necessary in them so that they can soar. That's an educational problem. And, and when we are going around in the state labeling schools as failing, Little House on the Prairie buildings didn't fail. Bubba might not have gotten out because Bubba wanted to work in the field. <laughs> but somebody in that little schoolhouse came out all right because they sat and paid attention. So it's not the building. And so we see in the African-American community, we see that kind of labeling and we understand it to be a political ploy to keep resources in one situation and deny resources in another. And those kinds of things are troubling. So that's, that's and, and with the youth, one of the things that I think white communities don't understand about young people and all of the crazy stuff that they do, young people are filled with rage. If they don't come up in a, in a, in a nurturing, loving environment, youth gangs, are replacing families. They're giving young people what families used to give, a sense of belonging, a sense of nurturing, a sense of feeling, a sense of caring. I got your back, even on the street. I'll protect you. Usually you get that at home. You get nurturing and love and security and discipline and all that at home, but now it's happening somewhere else and it's not being done lawfully or legally. And, and young people... Here's a young kid, I'll be honest with you, brutally honest. Here's a boy, young male. His mother has him out of wedlock. She doesn't get married. She ends up with another boyfriend, and then another boyfriend, and then another boyfriend. And he's wondering, where's his dad? 
And he can't say anything to mom or do anything about it. So what is going on inside of him? He becomes packed full of rage and anger. And he goes to school. And here's a female teacher. No male in the school. None look like him. And, and, and he doesn't know how to release that. And consequently, uh, they say, okay, you're bad. You're a troublemaker. Okay? Okay, you want me to be a troublemaker? Let me show you how much trouble I can make. And so life becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And consequently, okay, get out. Get out of my class. Next thing, get out of my school. Okay? Now, if he has trouble with school, then guess what next level is going to be? With law. And he's down a trail. And so there are two ways to that. That's the, that's the buzzard group pathway. That's the trouble pathway. And, and both leads to the same place. Wow. Uneducated. No means of economic survival, and consequently, rage and bitterness and hatred and criminal activity. Thank you very much. If I can add to that, uh, the vision, what he just shared with you is the areas that, that uh, he wants to impact to see a transformation in the West End. It's not just putting a church in the West End, not just uh, doing some uh, projects in the right. West End. But he's got a great vision to see a transformation uh, take place in that, creating jobs, uh, picking up the education uh, aspect of it, and developing strong families and finding a place there for them to come. So this is why we as a church are partnering with Greater Shiloh, is because we are working with his vision and trying to bring uh, our people together, resources together, uh, to see that happen. And uh, that's part of his heart right there. Thank you for sharing that. Next question. Which year did I start at Shiloh? 83. That was the bivocational. Okay. Right. right. Yeah. Well, one of the great needs that you find in schools today is, is a re- they begin, listen, this part of the political process, we put so much emphasis on test scores that we begin to stop educating children. And we begin to remove vocational programs. The vocational programs always gave kids who were not going to college an avenue, a skill set that can be developed. Now here in Birmingham and in Alabama, we have learned that the industry uh, persons still need plumbers and welders and brick masons and electricians and heating and air persons. And so now there's a desire and a need to return to providing that skill set again. Because it has always existed, but that was because a lot of times people who are making the laws concerning education have not gone through a process themselves. Hmm. And, and that's what is disturbing uh, when we see it from, a, from an educational standpoint and, and what bothers black people. Okay? I'm just, you know, continuing down that trail. I appreciate that. Any other final questions? Yep. There, there's, there's, it's multifaceted. Alabama now has a, they're teaching skills on the south side now. Brick masonry, uh, welding, heating and air, those kinds of things like that. We don't need to do that. What we need to do is to develop another kind of skill sets for young people that are coming out. And West End is populated with young people who have dropped out of school, people who are coming out of prison. 
and other, other kinds of things like that. They cannot find jobs. So we have to put different kind of processes in place. Uh, there are a lot of nail shops. There are a lot of barber in there. There are a lot of um, clerical skills. I like to develop a, a, a housekeeping a trade. Uh, Birmingham is populated heavily with hospitals. And the hospitals are now getting out of housekeeping business. But employees that are coming in too to keep hospital rooms are not doing a great job. You and I get sick, we go to hospital, we get greater infections because the rooms are not clean. If we can put one of those skill sets in one of our shops where we can teach people how to properly clean and develop rooms like that, these are low-end jobs, sure, but we can develop contracts with the hospitals, we can employ a whole lot of people, and we can guarantee the hospitals that your rooms will be cleaned well. That's one area. We had, the, we had that opportunity. We had to go an to opportunity. Dallas, Dallas uh, Benny, myself, and Tracy, and uh, Warren went out to Dallas, Texas. There was a program out there, His Bridge Builders. Uh, they partnered with the Omni Hotel, and they did exactly what I'm talking about. They taught people how to clean rooms at the Omni Hotel, and they developed skills, and young people just soared. And people who were coming out of prison and other things like that took those jobs. Now some of them have moved up into supervision and, and other levels. They've reconnected with their families. They're earning a, a real living. But there are several industries that I think that we could uh, systemically put in place. But in addition to, but there'll be vocational things, restaurant ownership, food service, uh, video photography, uh, some of the technical kinds of things like that that can be developed. And we could... Uh, help young people be successful. Dr. Wesley, thank you so much for leading us and hearing about yeah. us, and we're excited to partner with you. And at this time, we're going to uh, gather around a groups of five to eight and uh, ask and answer, talking your groups, to some of these questions. We have about ten minutes, which means we cannot get through all the questions, but it would be good for us to uh, start with some of these and continuing them as the weeks, months, and years continue. Here with you, and thank the people that came along with me from Greater Shallow. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. So we'll start these questions, and I'll pray for us to close in about 10 minutes. Thank you very much. All right, friends, we're going to, I hope your time and tables have been productive, and I hope that these conversations continue. To our guests tonight, we want to thank you so much for being here. What a treat it is to have your presence, and you're welcome back anytime. Uh, Let's close together with a short closing prayer to be read all together. Heavenly Father, give us the grace, wisdom, and boldness to make our church look more like you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Have a great night. Next week, we're going to be a GIC kickoff, and then the week after that, we'll be back in here. Have a great night.